Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It seems incredible that in the state of Tennessee, there are more monuments to a man who was a slave trader and grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan than to all three of the state's presidents combined. Yet, Such is the vehement devotion to the memory of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest. The subject inspired Connor Town O'Neill to write down along with that devil's bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. The book has been described as essential anti-racist reading, and we'll hear from the author later this hour. Also, painter and chalk artist Lata Fields talks about her work in Speaking of the Arts, our series of artists in their own words. First, Irish Fest at Lata is known as the festival where Ireland meets Georgia, a match made in heaven. The one-day experience is tomorrow in historic Roswell. Joining us via Zoom to discuss the festivities are Teresa Finley, the event coordinator of Irish Fest, and fiddle and tin whistle virtuoso Colin Farrell, who will play at the festival. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thank you. Hello. How are you doing, guys? Thanks very much for having me. Teresa, would you tell us, please, how Irish Fest Atlanta began? Well, Lois, uh, the festival began nine years ago. This will be our ninth festival. It's hard to believe. Um, It was really a bunch of uh, parents of young Uh, musicians, rising musicians coming up, and we wanted to do something in Atlanta to bring the best Irish musicians to our city that we could, and we thought a festival would be the right way to do it, and we started off that way, and our model has stayed pretty much the same. We bring in the best. We have some workshops with those featured artists, and we fill in the day with a lot of fun events something for everyone. And of course, we have nonstop music all day long and dancing 
And it's just been a, a great joy to work on this festival. Wonderful. We're going to hear from Colin in a moment. In years past, Irish Fest has featured national and international performers and artists. In addition to Colin, who are some of the other artists on the list this year? Well, this year we are doing a bit of a smaller festival because back in April, uh, we weren't sure what the environment would be like. So we cut it down to uh, one day. But Colin Farrell, Kevin Crawford and Dan Murray will be playing as a trio. They are uh, truly our featured guests this year. Shannon Dunn is coming in from uh, Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, as well to teach Shano's step dancing. And she'll be playing with a couple of our local musicians. And those are featured. And we have just about every Irish step dance school in the city performing, as well as all of our local artists are performing. Colin, you are among those featured artists at the festival, as Teresa said. How did you become interested in playing fiddle and tin whistle? Uh, well, my parents, I was born in Manchester in the northwest of England, and my parents, uh, they're both from Ireland, from Cavan and Galway, and uh, Manchester, when I was growing up, there was hundreds of kids like me, uh, second generation Irish, but we were just bought uh, lessons and gatherings from the age of like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and we were playing in different Cayley bands, and I was playing around the country when I was about 13 years old, 14 years old, and ever since then, I've just, I've just continued to play. What is a Cayley? A Cayley, we used to be in the Cayley band. A Cayley is a gathering of people and we'd play music and they'd dance uh, sets, they call them. You know, uh, some of the more well-known Irish sets would be like the Siege of Venice or the Hay- Haymakers Jig, uh, maybe groups of eight or 16 and dance around and play music for three or four hours and have a few drinks. But it's a great social gathering, really. Oh, it sounds like it. For those unfamiliar with the instrument, how would you describe the tin whistle? So the tin whistle is what most people, when they first start playing Irish music, would be handed a tin whistle because uh, it's a bit like the recorder. It can be, it's quite easy to, uh, to get to grips with at the start compared to like the, the fiddle or, or the accordion. And uh, it used to be quite cheap as well. It used to be, it used to be called a penny whistle. We call it the tenny whistle, but they're not as cheap anymore. Years ago, you could buy them for a few dollars. Now there'll be a few hundred. And uh, it's just, yeah, just straightforward. I'll just do a quick demonstration on it. I'll just do a quick reel on it. Uh, How can you not dance to that? It's irresistible. Yeah, so that was in the key of B flat as well. A lot of whistles, uh, I play in a group called Lunasa, and they have a signature sound with the whistles where they use a, a low whistle, which is a bit of deeper sound. But uh, So the one I played was uh, a B flat. But yeah, there's different keys and all that. But uh, it's a nice instrument to start off uh, when you first start playing Irish music. So, Preparing for this interview, I came across a video series you and a friend did called Colin Farrell's Tune a Day 2020. Yeah. On day 326, you both wrote the song Heidi's Dream for your sweet dog, Heidi. What inspired you to create that series? 
well, I've always enjoyed writing music. Any any spare time, if I picked the fiddle up, I just, I mean, there's uh, hundreds and thousands of amazing tunes written already. But I just, for some reason, I just I love to write music. And uh, I remember I was touring last year, uh, two years ago at Christmas with a band, and I just said one day I might write a tune a day next year because a lot of people have done the tune a day thing, but most people have done it where it's with tunes that have been composed already. I decided to write a tune every day of the year. And everyone laughed, and then if that so that gave me the motivation to give it a go, and uh, so I, I got through it anyway. So I had probably a hundred tunes already. So if if there was ever a day I picked up my instrument and it didn't come to me straight away, I'd use one of them. I, I didn't want uh, I, I hate forcing a tune. If if you're composing something, it, it, it either it'll either come straight away or it won't. I don't like to force something. So usually most of the tunes I wrote came in like five or ten minutes. Just before I came on the on, on air, I just started writing a new reel, so I'll have to name it after the radio show. Oh, you could call it the City Lights reel. That's a perfect name for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Oh, would we be honoured? Yeah, no problem. No, it's it's half done. The new the City Lights reel. So, but yeah, I've always enjoyed <laughs> writing music, and then I've been thinking about even doing it again next year, doing another year of uh, of tune a day of, of, of composing a tune, but. I had a, a baby two weeks ago, so I don't know if I'm going to have time, but we'll see. Oh, congratulations, girl Thank baby, boy baby. A boy, a boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see. If, if if he's well behaved and he gives me time to write a tune every day, I might give it a go. So What a gift. What's his name? Uh, Dara. Oh. Now, do you know which songs you will perform this weekend? We'll have an idea. We have a big... Uh, repertoire of Irish music that we choose from so we won't have anything uh, set at the moment when before the show we'll just sit down and say do you fancy this or that and Alan Murray the brilliant singer guitar player from Glasgow Scotland he's playing guitar with us and singing so he always brings new songs every time I see him so we'll see what he he decides to do but yeah we, we never do the same things all the time it gets a bit boring then we like to mix things up a little bit sure. so if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with fiddle virtuoso Colin Farrell and the chair of Irish Fest Atlanta, Teresa Finley. Teresa, can you give us some highlights of the workshops and different experiences people can attend, those they must register to attend as well. Yes, Lois. We start the day with uh, workshops and uh, started uh, early in the morning. And Colin and Kevin and Dan will be teaching workshops. So that's a rare treat to be able to sit down with them with uh, the particular instruments, as well as our teachers from the Phoenix Irish Arts School will be teaching as well, beginning instruments in fiddle and whistle and uh, concertina. Shannon Dunn will be teaching a set dance class. So I would not miss the workshops. It'll get you well prepared for the rest of the afternoon. 
Then at the heart of Roswell Park, we will have dancing all day long and some of our youth music schools, as well as some music at the end of the day. And at the Gate City stage, we will be featuring music all day long, accumulating with uh, our featured performers, of course, Kevin, Colin, and Alan at the end of the day. Our special events this year are fairly small and closed. Um, They're nearly all sold out, frankly, but the rest of the festival is uh, free. So you can go see the dancing and hear the music. And there's family programming for the kids, a little bit of face painting and things of that nature. So a nice outdoor event this year and free to the public. Wonderful. Colin, what will you teach during your workshop? I never go really prepared. With, I, I just wait to, hit, to hear everyone. I get everyone to play a few tunes. And if I try and, at the start, work with them individually as quick as I can just to point out certain things that they could improve, uh, certain phrasing. or Yeah, I just look at phrasing. The rhythm of Irish music is the most important thing to me. You know, Irish music is a dance music, so it's very important that you have that pulse and rhythm in, in, in the Irish music. So I try and get that across. You can know a thousand Irish tunes, but if you play one well, it's better than playing a hundred badly. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's nice to just point out a, f- a few things. And uh, I, I'll teach a couple of tunes, but that's not the main thing, because like I said, you can teach, you can learn tunes anywhere off YouTube or off anyone. It's it's mainly about, you know, technique and phrasing and stuff and and. And and people usually pick it up quite quickly as well. So, hmm. Teresa, I saw there's going to be an online fundraising auction. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, that has been uh, one of our hallmark events for the festival for the last 13 years, and it it starts out with a, a hand knit. Irish Blanket by my own mother, which has been uh, one of the favorites over the many years. And it'll be a smattering of all sorts of things, jewelry and and events and gifts, cards for restaurants and and things that are donated uh, by many sponsors. So every year is different. It's usually a great place to get some artwork and a few Irish things as well. And most importantly, it helps us fund the Irish Fest, and helps us bring in this great talent to Atlanta. You describe this event as where Ireland meets Georgia, a match made in heaven. How can festivals such as this help Atlantans have a better understanding of Irish traditions and ways of life? Well, this festival is truly, at its core, creating the atmosphere to enjoy the traditional Irish music and dance of Ireland primarily, spattered with uh, lots of events that appeal to broader audiences. But we really feel that bringing in and exposing people to the traditional music and dance of Ireland is a great way to get people involved, to get our youth involved, and to bring us together as a community. And if I if I might add to that as well, I, I'm I'm always astounded every time I go to Georgia to Atlanta. The standard of, of the Irish musicians is incredible. It's it's as good as any state and any county in Ireland as well. Like even Teresa's son Patrick could be one of the finest fiddle players in the world. And I love going there. Do you think we'll have a session this year? Maybe one or two sessions, Teresa. Oh, absolutely, Colin. Yeah. We we're just talking about that just this afternoon, and we've got. At on Canton Street, there's a restaurant called The Provisions, The French Provisions, and they're opening up 
uh, to us and we'll have a slow session, which is for beginner musicians, um, especially our youth musicians. And then uh, of course, uh, there'll be big expectation for Colin, Kevin and, and Alan to be sitting in, in the sessions later on with uh, the more advanced players. So that's one of the most things that I've missed the most about, you know, with the COVID and the lockdown is not being able to interact and have sessions with different people. That's the thing with Irish music is that, you know, it's a big social uh, event as well, playing music. So I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to as well, playing a few tunes with a few people. Well, I think you certainly validate that part of the festival described as a match made in heaven in terms of how you praised the Irish musicians in Atlanta. Colin Farrell, Teresa Finley, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Absolute pleasure. event coordinator and chair of Irish Fest. She was joined by fiddle virtuoso Colin Farrell. Irish Fest Atlanta is tomorrow in historic Roswell, starting at 9 a.m. More information about the events, workshops, and performances is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, our series of artists in their own words, speaking of the arts, today featuring Lata Fields. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hello, my name is Lata Fields. I'm from India. I was born and raised there. I came to the United States in 2000 and I have been living here since. 
I'm a portrait artist. Uh, faces interest me. Faces of different ethnicity, different backgrounds, different age groups, different walks of life, you name it. I love portraits. I also like landscape and florals, but I focus my energy on portraits. My mediums are pen and ink, graphite, pastel, charcoal, acrylic, and chalk. I also do watercolor and mixed media as well. Seven years ago, while I was enrolling my daughter for an art class at a local gallery, I decided to take classes myself. After a few months of classes, I realized I needed to pursue this. Uh, I needed to pursue it professionally. And so I started watching YouTube videos and uh, checked out every book from the library that was to check out. And I started getting commissioned work and got good reviews from the community. So I started making personal goals and little personal goals, daily personal goals, started tackling one hurdle at a time. I come from India and India is known for its vast culture and colors and diversity and festivities. And so I love colors and I love God's creation. I love seeing the brilliant display of colors in the sunrise and sunset and the seasons. And uh, the fall season is full of different color leaves and spring is full of colorful flowers. And so that excites me. And I want to put that on paper or canvases. My husband is from Atlanta and uh, all his family are based here. And I love Georgia for that reason. And also Atlanta is a thriving community in regards to art. I'm a member of the Georgia Chalk Artists Guild and Visual Artists Alliance of LaGrange. And that has brought me many opportunities to display my art throughout the state. So I love Atlanta and um, my community has a lot of good artists and so I love being friends with them and I like street art. I love uh, driving through the city and uh, seeing the murals and how different artists have tackled different walls and different color scheme and uh, I also like to see the sculptures that are displayed publicly along the roadside or parks. Currently, I'm working on a Jack Nicholson portrait. I like uh, watching his movies and uh, trying different perspectives and see how I can recreate some of his iconic movies. <laughs> Painter and chalk artist Lata Fields and our series Speaking of the Arts. Coming up, we'll listen back to my interview with the author Connor Town O'Neill. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. It seems incredible that in the state of Tennessee, there are more monuments to a man who was a slave trader and grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan than to all three of the state's presidents combined. Yet, 
Such is the vehement devotion to the memory of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest. The subject inspired a book by Connor Town O'Neill, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. It's been described as essential anti-racist reading. When O'Neill joined me via Zoom last year, he began by detailing the experience that led him to write the book. Of all things, it was a search for free parking that sent me down this rabbit hole about Nathan Bedford Forrest and and his monuments. Uh, So in March of 2015, I was in Selma, Alabama, covering the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which was the uh, attack in 1965 uh, by Alabama law enforcement on nonviolent demonstrators at the foot of uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge there in Selma, the late John Lewis among them. And 50 years later, President Obama was in town to give a speech and to cross over the bridge in remembrance. And along with him, some 40,000 other people showed up. So by the time I got to town, uh, and, and Selma's a pretty small city. So by the time I got there, you know, the downtown streets were packed. People were, you know, flooding over the sidewalks. Uh, and so I figured, oh, maybe I can find a, an out-of-the-way place to leave my car in the cemetery that's just a couple of blocks from downtown. And, and Selma, like a lot of southern towns, has this, you know, really old South-feeling cemetery, mausoleums, Spanish moss, the whole deal. So I pull in and it has its own system of roads there. And and as I'm driving through, I see these signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing. And that really piqued my interest. That's sort of catnip for a reporter. So I just kind of wander over and, and, and start talking to the people who were there and come to realize that this group that owns this plot in the in the cemetery, the, the Friends of Forest, they call themselves, uh, had spent really the better part of the last two decades fighting uh, about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that they had put up. The juxtaposition, the dissonance of this encounter with the neo-Confederate group on a day of you know, a major civil rights anniversary, it, it almost gave me whiplash and raised a bunch of questions about who Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue of him in 2015, and, you know, what the persistent legacy of of the Civil War was some 150 years later. And so I went down this rabbit hole about Forrest and, and his monuments, and just a couple months later, Dylan Roof murders nine parishioners of Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, and soon after he's apprehended, Uh, photos from his blog circulate online. And it became clear that almost as a way to sort of steal himself uh, for this act of terrorism that he would commit, he took a sightseeing tour around South Carolina, visiting slave memorials, plantations, Civil War sites. Uh, And so in the aftermath of, of the Charleston Nine murders, this real referendum on Confederate symbols breaks out. Bree Newsom scales the flagpole of the South Carolina Capitol to remove the Confederate flag there. And, you know, all across the South, campaigns break out 
to protest names of schools, the use of the Confederate flag, and of course, uh, Confederate monuments. And so as those campaigns started up, because of this encounter that I had had with the Friends of Forest just a few months earlier, I decided that I was going to follow some of these stories and follow the ones aimed at monuments of forest in particular. So that's been, you know, every working day for the last five years have been, you know, running down leads and following stories that I found from this, you know, chance encounter in a, in a cemetery while I was looking for free parking. I like how you describe that as catnip for a reporter. You were one of the producers for the NPR podcast, White Lies, and the podcast examined the murder of Reverend James Reeb in Selma, Alabama, and uncovered the truth behind the acquittal of the three men who murdered him. How did your work on the podcast inform your approach to writing the book? Well, uh, you know, in the most basic way, it was what was bringing me to Selma a lot and, and, and how I stumbled upon this story. When I met this neo-Confederate group in the, in the cemetery, they handed me a, a stack of Confederate propaganda that included a letter outlining the conspiracy theory about how essentially the, move, the civil rights movement had killed uh, James Reeb. And we spent a lot of time in the podcast um, you know, really deconstructing and, and decimating that that conspiracy theory. But it was, of course, the, the theory that the um, defense attorney used to uh, lead to the acquittal of the men accused of killing Reed. So really, it's it's been that the book is kind of a, a spinoff from some of the reporting that, that we were doing on, on white lies. But I think a lot of the questions raised about how we face our history and the, the, the ways that our unwillingness to tell the truth about the past and the really sort of terrifying nature of American history, our refusal to do that continues to have consequences for us in the, in the present. And so, you know, the, uh, the podcast took, you know, this moment from the, the civil rights movement and looked at the, the lies that people were telling themselves, the conspiracies that had, um, that had come up as almost a sort of coping mechanism to let people off the hook, a community off the hook even, uh, from having to face and be accountable to the, the violence in its past and the, the violence committed in order to try and maintain a society based on this racial hierarchy. In a lot of ways, the book looks at a lot of the same questions. It just sort of moves them back a hundred years. So instead of looking at a moment or a figure from the civil rights movement, this is looking at a, a figure from, from the civil war, but it's asking a lot of those same questions. Why we aren't telling the truth about who Forrest was and what his legacy represents. This is a man who, like you say, was a slave trader, an accused war criminal during the war, the first grand wizard of the Klan after the war, operated a, a convict leasing plantation, uh, a system that's known as slavery by another name. So in, in, in sort of every phase of his life, he was committed to upholding this racial hierarchy um, and, and to benefit from that materially. And yet, like you say, the, the South is flooded with monuments of him trying to honor him. Um, and to sidestep the, the thornier questions about what it means to remember him, and to not just remember him, but to honor him in the present. You mentioned the word deconstruct, and I'm not trying to get into any literary theory here, but that came to my mind in the portion of the book 
where you cite Derek Alderman, a professor of cultural geography at the University of Tennessee, saying that the monuments were built for the purposes of communicating who mattered in Southern society and who mattered within American society. You can think of them as monuments to the power of the people who erect them rather than as solely of the person depicted. This is striking, Connor. Would you elaborate on how monuments are as much, if not more, for the living than the dead? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's important there. We can sometimes get so habituated to them. Uh, the, the monuments of the places that we live can sort of fade into the background of the skyline almost. And, and it's easy to think of them as always having been there and it, that it's just inevitable that they are there. But of course, they're not. You know, they they were put up at a particular moment. And especially if they're on public property, putting them up would require a certain amount of economic power and certainly political power as well. I mean, obviously, they seek to uh, remember someone from the past, but you can't just put up a monument, right? It, it, it does require some exertion of power. And in exerting that power, you're deciding for a town, a city, a state, uh, a university, who's worthy of being remembered in the moment that you're remembering them. Um, not everyone gets a monument. And so you can look at the landscape and think, okay, who gets remembered and when are they being remembered as a reflection of the values of the society in those moments in the present. So, uh, for example, uh, the, the big 30-foot bronze equestrian statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was in Memphis uh, doesn't go up in 1877 when he died in that city, but rather goes up in 1905, you know, decades later. Uh, and by that point, you know, 50 years after, almost 50 years after the, the war had ended, and that moment matters. And it's not a coincidence that it goes up in that moment. That's a moment, uh, you know, that same year, Memphis uh, segregates its streetcars. And it's in the aftermath of Ida B. Wells's uh, groundbreaking reporting on uh, racial terror lynchings that, that were taking place in Memphis the previous decade. So they're about the Civil War and they seek to honor this general from the Civil War, but they're also responding to the particular moment that they're going up just as much. And they're a reflection of the, the powerful men, the powerful white men in Memphis in 1905 who wanted that statue to go up. And of course, made no secret about it when they dedicated the statue. One of the state senators who spoke at that statue's dedication said that, you know, Forrest will fight for us and as long as there's a drop of Anglo-Saxon blood. So they were really making it clear the sort of racial uh, overtones of this statue. It wasn't just about, you know, remembering the Civil War. No, um, and, and indeed, you make the point clearly that the majority of Confederate statues were built in the Jim Crow era between the 1890s and the 1950s. <laughs> Something that occurred to me while reading that was the fact that there is no counterpart for these Confederate monuments in Germany or in South Africa. There certainly has been 
a rise of populism throughout Europe. There has been a far right that's taken hold in Germany and other Western European countries. There are no monuments to Eichmann or any of the SS, the Nazi commanders. There aren't even, to my knowledge, World War II generals who have statues in Germany. Why does our country allow this? I think because the unwillingness to see reconstruction through. So, of course, you know, the these Confederate monuments are, are monuments to the losers of the war. But in a in an ideal in an ideological sense, the South didn't really lose the Civil War. They lost the military conflict. But ideologically, it's harder to argue that the South really lost. So, you're right. If if you look at losers, don't get to put up statues. But in this case, they did. And I think that's because in the aftermath of the of the Civil War during Reconstruction, there was this this fleeting you know about a decade of time in which the country was really grappling with the consequences of the war um, and asking the question that that had made the war, you know, come, which was you know, if a, a, a settler and slave society could transform itself into a multiracial democracy. And so you see in Reconstruction's effort towards efforts toward really making that happen, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, vesting the formerly enslaved with uh, equal protection under the law, political rights, voting rights. And yet that's short-lived and it's short-lived in large part because of forces like the Ku Klux Klan, which Forrest was the, the grand wizard of, the first grand wizard of, really undermining those efforts. And by 1877, with the brokered election, the North and the South are really ready to sort of pack up shop on this effort to really transform the country into that multiracial democracy and instead allow the former Confederates to return to power and to re-implement policies that protect the racial hierarchy as it existed before the war. So you have things like convict leasing, sharecropping, poll taxes, other ways of disen voter disenfranchisement. And it's at that moment, once the former Confederates have returned to power, these statues start going up. Uh, to they start having the, the political capital to put up statues to their heroes. So yeah, so the, the Confederates lost the, the military conflict. They surrender at Appomattox, but ideologically speaking, it's, the Confederacy has had a much longer tail and, and the Confederate statues that we're still dealing with are a reflection of that, just as you know, so many of the in inequities that we have in this country are, are part of that long tail of the Confederacy. What did you learn in all of this research that doesn't surprise you about why there's this clinging to a memory of terror? I think we cling to these monuments and the the attitudes reflected in them, because they don't want to hold us accountable. The Confederate monuments, I think, in a way, reflect an attitude toward the past that we can only, uh, we only have to think about the past in ways that flatter us, or in ways that, you know, reflect positively on us. So, you know, if you ask people why they want a statue of Forrest to stay up, they say, well, because he was a great military commander uh, or because he was a self-made man. And the, the sort of magical thinking required 
to only think about forest in those terms, I think is really seductive. And I think is in one way or another seductive for, for lots of people, uh, regardless of their feelings about forest specifically. Because I think we've inherited a drastically unequal, violent, in a lot of ways, sort of morally bankrupt society. <laughs> and thinking about the past, thinking about the, you know, the ways that the system of slavery was physical and, and spiritual torture and essentially built the modern economy, uh, enriched people in the North as well as the South, how the lie that people in the North and the South were telling to justify that system, that in the enslaved people were inherently inferior. That lie, of course, is going to persist long after emancipation, looking at all of the policies throughout the years that have continued that racial hierarchy and meant to protect the racial hierarchy from the Homestead Act to who's included or left out of the Social Security Act, who gets FHA loans, uh, who's eligible for the GI Bill, who is the target of predatory lending in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. There's a, a long lasting injury that is a result of this lie that we've told ourselves about white supremacy and black inferiority. And so if you look at the past and, and see that we should be held accountable to that past, then we need to change. Confederate monuments tell us that we don't need to change, that when we look backwards, we should see things that flatter us and that don't hold us accountable or responsible, but instead say, you know, yes, our, our past flatters us. And, and this is American exceptionalism 101 in a lot of ways. You know, we're, we're constantly making this union more perfect, where progress is inevitable, we're always getting better. But I think when there's a referendum on Confederate monuments, there's, that suggests a deeper referendum on, on how we look to the past and, and, and what the past might lead us to do to confront the inequities that, that persist to this day. We've talked a great deal about the South, about the Confederate monuments in the South. You don't let Northerners off the hook, Connor. Equally dispiriting is what you bring to this story as a Northerner. Would you talk about that? Yeah, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the, the southern end of that county is the, the Mason-Dixon line. And I think that that line, we think about re in a really convenient way in the North. This sort of received wisdom is that, you know, oh, we're, we're in the North and, and race, insofar as it's still a problem in America, is just, a, you know, a problem in people's hearts and mostly is just a problem down there. And the Civil War, that's, you know, we're, we're affiliated with the Union Army, the great emancipators. So by extension, then, of course, racism and the Confederacy, all of that is tied together. And that's, and that's, that's stuff for down there. The great writer Robert Penn Warren called it the, uh, the treasury of virtue, you know, sort of disdainfully <laughs> describing the Northerners' attitude that they're sort of unimpeachable and that they don't have this, this history of the war doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with them. And I certainly felt that that growing up. That's, again, really convenient, but it's just, it's just not true. You know, if you look at the ways that that northerners were heavily and, 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 and deeply invested in the slave system, we're, we're making massive profits from it, developing all of these sorts of financial instruments to make even more profit from it. I mean, 
the great historian Edward Baptist documents this in incredibly and in, in, in devastating detail and the half has never been told. I mean, reading that book, I think really opened up my eyes to see that the, the, the deep financial stake that, that the North had in this slave system. We really flatter ourselves by thinking that, you know, just because we can claim the Union Army that we can somehow be exempt from, uh, from the legacy of slavery. Uh, we really can't. And of course, you know, looking at an even deeper history that my family likes to think about in, in really positive terms, um, we, you know, we have descendants on the Mayflower, family history that touches the Salem witch trials, this long, you know, sort of the, the Puritan origins of New England. And that we, you know, we like to think of that in terms of the Enlightenment, this new birth of freedom that, that we helped create in this, in, in the new world, being devout Christians and, and, you know, helping to establish these ideas of liberty and freedom that the country would be built on. But this working on this project really prompted me to, to reevaluate those stories that we were telling ourselves and, and to look in, a, in a, a more honest way, in a more sobering way, of course, at the ways that the settlement of, of the, those British colonies was genocidal and that we had these ideas of who we were and who others were and this you know the the inherent inferiority of the native peoples that we are displacing and murdering half of the wealth of colonial new england is coming from you know sugar plantations enslaved people in sugar plantations in the west indies so in so many ways we're we're complicit in these systems and we're building societies based on this hierarchy um, that we're justifying in different ways, whether through Christianity or through, you know, this this presumed inferiority of the the men and women that we were enslaving and profiting from. So working on this book just blew up so many of the the lies that I was telling myself about about our past and and how that past was was shaping our present. Yeah, the North is not off the hook. No. You began this journey in 2015 when as you told us President Obama gave the speech at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It's such a stunning memory to picture the Obamas linked in arms with John Lewis marching across that bridge. Five years later now, does the book have new meaning for you or added layers for you in the events of this year, other than the birth of your darling daughter? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of course, after a summer of, of, of monuments coming down, <laughs> I, I wish that I could still, still be writing. They had to really pry the book out of my hands uh, to send it to the printers. Uh, for the, you know, during the last sweep of copy editing, I was still trying to, <laughs> to write new chapters. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it it added to the poignancy and and, and the power of the images that we've seen in different cities of these these monuments coming down, uh, especially the ones that in in which they were taken down just as a a, a sort of organic expression of the will of the people. In a lot of cities, people are done asking. To take these monuments down and are just going out, um, you know, with chains tied to the back of pickup trucks, with flamethrowers, with tire irons, uh, with paint, with sledgehammers, and just doing it themselves. And I think that that that's really powerful as an expression of of 
a collective will that has just lost any sort of patience with this process. You know, a lot of the stories that I followed for the book uh, involved uh, activists trying to proceed as the way allows and, you know, wanting to work through the channels, whether that's city council, state governments, you know, university administrators, to, to, to sort of appeal to the morality of these institutions and get them to see uh, the, the, the horrific and violent history that these, that these statues represent and to ask them, you know, in, in, in good conscience to, to take them down. But in so many cases were refused. And so I think what, one of the things we see this summer is just a, a feeling like we're done asking and, and they're, they're coming down. And understanding that those removals in the context of just a sort of a revolutionary gesture rather than just a sort of bureaucratic gesture, I think has been really powerful to see. You mentioned the speech that President Obama gave on the, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the, the day that you know really kicked kicked off the the story that this book tells, and I think that this year has been a really good reminder that progress is not inevitable. I think some people like to a lot of a lot of white people too. I think if I can generalize, <laughs> like to think about the civil rights history as race used to be a problem. Brave men like Martin Luther King stood up and marched and, you know, solved it. And and it doesn't really have much to do with us. And, and of course, the bridge in Selma, the, the, the metaphorical meaning of that bridge, crossing over progress, progress fulfilled, I think is really tempting. But we, we constantly have to fight for it. And any gains that we make, any progress we get, any, any <laughs> policies that can uh, address the, the sorts of inequities that we have in this country are, are we need to fight for tooth and nail and, and, and won't come you know, because it's predestined to come, but it, it comes because people were willing to fight for it. That was certainly true in the case of, you know, the, the movement in Selma. I don't think anyone thought it was inevitable that, that they would secure voting rights during those demonstrations, um, but they were willing to, you know, as John Lewis was willing to get his, his skull fractured to fight for that. And I think that that we can take lessons from that moment, but one of them shouldn't be that that progress is inevitable. That that it's a it's a constant fight. So you know, regardless of the outcome of the um, of the election in a couple of weeks, we've got our work cut out for us in terms of uh, the, the the fights that lay ahead. Or as you eloquently expressed at the end of the book, simply knowing our history cannot redeem us. Cannot, as they say in Selma get us to the beyond. Mm, that's right. Yeah. That line comes from a, a slogan in Selma from, from civil war to civil rights and beyond. And as, as one of the activists who was protesting the, the forest statue in Selma uh, pointed out to me, you know, we haven't gotten to the beyond yet. And those are the sorts of fights that we've still got to dig in for. Author Connor Town O'Neill More information about his book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy, is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., The Road I Call Home, 
Portraits and Stories of the Homeless. On view at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. Plus, the Atlanta Magic Theater's Peter Morrison. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.